Welcome to the Groninger Feminist Network podcast. For anyone who doesn't know us, we are a community-led network of like-minded people, inclusive of all gender identities, sexualities, races, religions, ethnicities, education, class, and abilities. The GFN meets every Wednesday evening at 8 o'clock at Jimmy's to create a safe space for discussion. Our monthly podcast episode goes more in-depth about a topic we've discussed in the meetings. At GFN, we expect everyone to be respectful of each other and give each other the benefit of the doubt. That said, if you think we said something wrong, leave us a comment. Have fun. Hello. Welcome to our space. <laughs> Hello. Um, where we normally do this, we just do a sort of introductory round. Just name, pronouns, if you're comfortable with that. Um, my name's George. My pronouns are they, them. Um, awesome. I'm Sonia Renee Taylor. My pronouns are she, her, hers, sometimes we. I'm Natalie, and my pronoun is she or her. I'm Clem, and my pronouns are she or her. Yeah. All right. So we want to, first of all, kick off this uh, little discussion. Uh, this year's Lustrum event was centered around the themes of diversity and inclusivity. And I wanted to ask you, what do those terms mean to you? Um, nothing. <laughs> I think those terms, I, I, I mean, literally, I don't think that those terms have much context. Uh, I think that they are, um, I cannot remember her name, who closed out uh, the conference yesterday, but one of the professors... I assume here, um, just talked about the ways in which oftentimes the words diversity and inclusion are used as stand-ins to say, hey, we're really nice liberal people who have desire to give up no power but don't want to look like bad people. Uh, and so it was interesting in the invitation to be part of a diversity inclusion conference. I was already, already really clear that my intention was to come and talk about why diversity and inclusion, particularly diversity and inclusion without the word equity in it is is actually doesn't mean anything you know like it's actually uh for me sort of a synonym for tokenism but just more tokens okay yeah, yeah. and this kind of leads on to my second uh, question of what were your considerations in uh, participating in uh, the conference of growing together and celebrating diversity and fostering inclusion um i think that i was interested in what folks were going to do with it mm -hmm. uh I was already pretty clear that whatever, I mean, what I loved is that I arrived here and it was very clear to me that there was already um, a vision around pushing this conversation further than what the words diversity and inclusion often sort of sit in. Mm -hmm. uh, but in before I got here, I was like, oh, I'm probably going to be disruptive in this space, but I'm okay with that. Right. Yeah. So it's a, you're, so you're, um, what you've seen so far is it's a positive thing for you. Absolutely. I think that they did a really good job. It feels to me as if, um, and I think some folks spoke to this yesterday, it feels like given the context of the university and what appears to be a more conservative um, administration, what they were interested in doing was figuring out how to bring a conversation about equity and justice in a way that would still get the funding that it needed to be. Um, to put such a thing on. Um, it was clear by the time I looked at who they invited that they were talking about something bigger than just diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, that's strategic. Cool, that's strategic. So yeah, I think ultimately I was, um, I was impressed with the way that they, the way they navigated um, an administration that might not necessarily be as open to the ideas that ultimately got presented. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I think was all already quite clear from the very first uh, speech by the 
president of the university. Yes, right? exactly. <laughs> and I think every keynote speaker after that, and also people like in the workshops that I encountered, was like completely dis dismantling everything like yeah. we talked about about like uh, identity politics, like. Natalie, you had some questions, right? Yeah, like, can you tell us about more a bit your own work and then especially a bit about um, The Body is Not an Apology? Can you explain a little about that? Sure. Um, so The Body is Not an Apology oh. is a digital media and education platform um, that explores social justice issues um, using the vehicle of the body to understand um, sort of how social justice issues work in the world and then uses a framework we call radical self-love to talk about how we address injustice and oppression first as a manifestation of our personal relationships with our own bodies and then as a manifestation of oppression and injustice in the world. Uh, we didn't start off as a digital media platform. We started off as a a it started off as a conversation with a friend that became a poem, that became a Facebook page, that became a movement, that became a company, and that became a book and continues to become things. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, our work really is to help people recognize that injustice and inequity in the world are manifestation. They are not sort of apparitions that got created out of nowhere. They got created by humans, oftentimes, built on our beliefs and understandings about bodies and how certain bodies, uh, our perspectives about bodies allocate resource and power. Uh, and so the body is not an apologies position is that as we learn to make peace with our own bodies, as we learn to reconnect to our inherent sense of worthiness, then the hierarchical systems that we are invested in that relay power and resource become nece less necessary to us, and then we have a vested interest in dismantling them. Uh, and so we've been doing that work the, since February 9th of 2011, mm -hmm. um, and today our content sort of reaches enough around the world that I'm sitting in the Netherlands talking to you. <laughs> That's so then um, also in, in you talk about a lot of concept and in your philosophy of um, radical self-love. Love, you also talk about um, body terrorism and mm -hmm. equity. Can you also explain those terms? Because you already explained radical self-love, yeah. what it means, but the other two. Absolutely. So body terrorism really are the structural and systemic manifestations of this inequitable and oppressive relationship that we have with certain bodies in the world. And I think what is important to remember is that there are no bodies that end up exempt from the system of body terrorism. Uh, even the most privileged bodies, you know, wealthy, able-bodied, cis, straight white men will eventually, will eventually have that status compromised by, uh, by a society that deems something about them less valuable. Whether it's because they're aging, whether it's because able-bodiedness leaves, whether it's because virility leaves, there are all kinds of um, things that we premium about bodies that all bodies will eventually not have anymore. Uh, and so the systemic and structural oppressions that we face, the laws, the social uh, and political stigmas, and uh, yeah, and the ways in which we codify body shame um, and um, body-based violence and oppression, the way we codify that into law, into society, into social mores, that is body terrorism. 
And there was a second word you asked me to define. Um, I couldn't remember what it was. Yeah, equity. Equity. So equity is the idea. You know, a lot of times we hear people talking about equality. The problem with the notion of equality is that it assumes that everybody needs the same thing. And my favorite example of this is, you know, no one has ever been like, you know what, I'm going to put this bowl of spaghetti in front of this five-month-old. Right? Like, <laughs> that is not the nutrients that a five-month-old's body needs, right? Mm -hmm. And so, consequently, an equitable relationship is that we give people what it is they need, not what everyone gets the same, because everyone doesn't need the same thing. Yeah. Oh, no, you look like you're about to say something. Um, I remember uh, tying into this imagery that you gave, um, I remember seeing often a photo of got a short person, a medium person, and a tall person all overlooking a fence. Yeah. And equality is everyone gets the same Box. building block yeah. to watch, but you still got the other two who don't see as well as the tall person. Yeah. Whereas equity is the tall person doesn't get it, but everyone gets the block to help them see over the fence yeah. that's adapted to them. Exactly. The issue I've always had with that image is I'm like, justice is no fence. Yeah, of course. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and that's yes. what I'm actually, you know, like that's yeah. the world I'm interested in is a world where access isn't obstructed. So we don't have to give out blocks because access isn't obstructed, right? Um, but in a world where access is still obstructed, different people need different things. Um, and certainly given a world where no one started from the same place, then if what we're trying to do is make sure that everyone has what it is they need, then that means that some people are going to need more because they've had less historically. Mm. Yeah. And how, how do you think we can achieve this? You said like that we all start like with the same, have the same. Like, yeah. Do you so, have any like practical tips? Well, so, I mean, it's the reason why we talk about radical self-love at our work, right? Because, again, these systems are not external. They're not some, you know, there isn't, the institution, like we were talking about yesterday, someone mentioned this at the conference, you know, the idea that there's the institution. The institution is run by human beings. <laughs> human beings who have beliefs and ideas that are deeply steeped in their own uh, internalized hierarchies, right? And, in, and that those hierarchies exist to help them situate their own value in the world, right? And value as it as it um, relates to power, value as it relates to resource, all of these other things, right? And so for me, I believe that the first place that we cannot build externally what we haven't built internally, that we cannot build a world that is equitable and just and still have inequitable, unjust relationships with ourselves, that we still deeply believe all the things the world has told us, but somehow we want to make something different, right? So I can't deeply believe that all bodies deserve um, care and consideration and the opportunities to thrive and still hate my fat body, right? Okay. Because the hating of my fat body is a message given to me by a society that deems fat bodies as less valuable. So as long as I'm still internally invested in that system, I can't actually bring about the world I say I want. And so the reason we use the radical self-love model is, is because our proposition is that you got to do you first. Right? And that's so much of the reason why we haven't actually shifted the systems of injustice in the world is because, and more, it, more than anything, I think we've been doing this like shell game where we just move the injustice over here and it looks a little different, right? So chattel slavery just becomes the prison industrial complex. It's not different. It just is dressed different. It's got a different outfit on, but it's the same thing, right? And so, but that's because we haven't undone the belief that black and brown bodies are lesser than or inherently 
criminal in the way that the you know one of the folks talking earlier was yeah. talking about right so until we undo those actual foundational beliefs that live in us mm-hmm. we will only continue to just sort of change the clothes on the mannequin but the mannequin will be the same yeah. thank you very much yeah um, like, so this process of uh, deconstructing these internalized beliefs, mm-hmm. uh, we were talking about it earlier, and it, this can be very difficult in the face, I think, of the constant, continued input of these beliefs from outside, right? Absolutely. And especially, like, then, for example, if you're already inclined to think of yourself as lesser than, in part because of the, the beliefs from the outside, and, for example, mental health issues, something that comes up a yeah. lot, and just topics about self-love, like, not the radical self-love that you're talking about, but just self-love generally, like often there's a thing of like, oh, well, some people can't love themselves. But I think there's a kind of different way of talking about love than you talk about. Mm-hmm. So I guess like, how do you engage with radical self-love and, and deconstruct internally while also having all these external stimuli constantly on you? Yeah. So I think that, and we talk about this in my book, The Body's Non-Apology, The Power of Radical Self-Love. Um, and I talk about it's what we call a process of de-indoctrination. And that voice, those voices, those messages that we're constantly being inundated with, I call them the outside voice, right? And so the outside voice is the voice that tells you you are not worthy, you, you know, your, posi- your positionality in a space of marginalization is acceptable, is of course what it should be. All of those things that that we are fed every single day is the outside voice. I believe deeply that we inherently actually have a well it's not even I believe we can see and this is the reason I use the toddler uh, because the toddler is a great example. You don't see toddlers who are in adversarial relationship with themselves right they have that is an external messaging and so part of the work is to make the distinction between your internal voice and the outside voice. For me, once I recognize that many of the negative, self-deprecating, oppressive beliefs that I was holding about myself were not my own, that they were given to me, and they were given to me as a function of a system maintaining power and control over me, I felt a lot less invested in keeping those. I actually felt really pissed off. I was like, oh, you're trying to work me. Like, oh, I'm being manipulated. And, and as soon as I feel manipulated, that's a great way. I don't know about anybody else, but self-righteousness is a fantastic motivator for me. And so as soon as I connected to the fact that I was being manipulated by a system that I already could constantly see as a fat black queer woman, I was constantly being manipulated by, I was very clear that I wasn't interested in colluding with that system. And so that's what I ask people to do is to, to make the distinction between your internal voice and the external voice, and then as a daily practice, learn how not to collude with the system. And I offer really practical things to do that, right? Like, so in the book, I offer what I call 10 tools to radical self-love. And these are really simple, everyday ways that we can begin to make, one, the distinction between the outside voice and the inside voice, and then turn down the dial on the outside voice and turn up our internal radical self-love voice. So one of those things is something like dump the junk, right? It's like noticing the media that we're intaking that actually reaffirms these really negative messages, and then intentionally stop doing that. I stopped buying magazines, right? I just, because I was like, oh, every time I flip a page, it tells me I'm deficient. Why would I continue to give someone money to tell me I'm deficient, right? I also got rid of my television. That took a long time, but it was like, oh, every time I turn it on, 
literally the television tells me I am failing and not enough to sell me something. What would happen if I just eliminated 12 hours of that every single day? Like what mental space does that create? So that's, that's one of them. There are other tools around meditation. One of, I have two tools, the, the last two tools in the book that I think are the most important. If you don't do, you could do, you could not do anything else. And if you do these two, you're probably going to do all right. Um, and number nine is be in community, right? To defy the notion of individualism as a way in which we move towards collective liberation is just, it's not true. Like individualism is antithetical to, to freedom and liberation, to an anti-oppressive world. The reality is that we are interdependent. And whether we choose to acknowledge that or not, it just is. And so being in community helps you create a sound system that can be louder than the outside voice. Um, and then number 10 is give yourself some grace. That so often we treat this journey like a thing, like it's a destination I'm trying to get to. And once I'm there, I've arrived, I'm radical self-love, right? And that's bullshit. That's just not actually how that works. That as long as we live in an oppressive system, we will be countering these messages on a daily basis. Um, and so for me, the assignment is to love the Sonya that doesn't love Sonya until Sonya loves herself again. That's it. I love you, Sonya, who feels you're not good enough today. I love you, Sonya, who feels like you're deficient and not worthy in the world. I love that Sonya until that Sonya feels strong enough to, to hold up again. Thank you. <laughs> I, I have a question. It sounds easy when you when you say it. Like I think practically every person in this room, at some point or another, they find it very hard to support that side of them that they don't like. Yeah, it's very difficult to connect the two. Absolutely, I I never propose. It's simple. It is not easy. Oh, no. <laughs> right? It's simple. Yeah. It's like, oh, love myself until I don't until I love myself again. Yeah. Simple. No, it takes work yeah. and it's intentional. But the reality is that suffering takes work. Right? That hating yourself is really an exhausting, arduous journey to be on. And so if I'm going to pick a long-ass, grueling-ass journey, I'm going to pick the one that involves love. Yeah, and that's going to better help you better yourself exactly. rather than take you down the path where you're like, I don't like where I've ended up. Exactly. Exactly. I would have a question with that. Like, how long did it take you to change your mindset kind of into this vertical self-love and apply those practical steps that you were just telling us about? Um, till two minutes ago, till right now. Like, that's what I mean is that it's not a, it is not a destination, right? It's a daily practice. There are days I wake up and I absolutely have that relationship. There are days that I'm like, if I'm uncaffeinated, I'm the meanest, nastiest, cruelest person in my head. I talk about all of y'all if I haven't had coffee. Uh, <laughs> but, then, but I also have trained myself to notice, to not let those things run unconsciously. So I talk about this process as a thinking, doing, being process. The first assignment is to raise my thoughts to my conscious awareness so that they are not operating my life in the background, right? Like oftentimes we won't allow ourselves to think the thoughts we're thinking, but they're still guiding us. They're still dictating our actions. They're still deciding what we did and didn't put on that day, where we will and will not go, what we believe about this person or don't believe about that person. So if I'm interested in shifting that, then I've got to raise those thoughts to my conscious awareness. Once I've raised those thoughts to my conscious awareness, I actually have some autonomy over whether or not I choose to act on them, right? So it's not that you just stop thinking negative thoughts, no. It's just that now, today, I have choice 
about whether or not I act on the things that pop in my brain. Whether or not I assume that the things that pop in my brain are my own ideas or ideas given to me by a body terroristic society, right? And so once I'm like, oh, that's not my idea, I don't have to keep it. That is actually my idea. I feel connected to that in an authentic way. I can move from that. And every day that we practice that thinking and doing process, it creates a new way of being. We become a different way than we've historically been. And that's an ongoing process. Yeah, I like that you say we, I say we have to practice it every day. And I call it your radical self-love muscle, right? Like, you, you, gotta, you gotta lift weights, <laughs> but in a different kind of way. Yeah. When did you realize that the concept of radical self-love will ch or can change the world? Yeah. Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I think, well, I think when I realized that it could change a person mm. is when I realized it could change the world because the world changes one person at a time doing something different, right? And that the collective, the collective weight of our transformation is what makes the world a different place. You know, when I first said the, when I first said the words, your body is not an apology to a friend, and it made her rethink her relationship with her body, and it made me rethink my relationship with my body, and it started shifting the way that I was moving and what I was doing, and it started making me question what I was saying to myself. Once that happened, I was like, oh, that's a thing. That has power. And then I was like, well, if that has power, then how do we, how do we wield that power intentionally? Like, what else can we do? If this has this kind of juice, then what needs to happen around it? Uh, and so I forget oftentimes, the very first time after I started the Facebook page, um, I was at a poetry event in uh, Seattle, Washington, and I was on the stage and I was like, I just started a Facebook page. I want you to go home and like it. I am creating a movement. And then I, then I put that statement away for a very, very long time to the point where I forgot I said that. The, the night that I started the page, I said, I'm starting a movement. I didn't really, there was some part of me that knew that that was true and then there was some part of me that was like, that's too big of a vision to live into right now. So I'm just gonna say I have a Facebook page, like it. <laughs> uh, and so yeah, I think, I think somewhere from the very start of it, I was, there was some part of me that knew that this was uh, transformative on a global scale. And tying in a little bit to this, did you, you like looking back now, it's been what, 10? Seven years. Seven years? Eight now. years, I'm sorry, we're in year eight. <laughs> so we're close to a decade now. <laughs> Thanks a lot for freaking me out. So now it's been eight years, almost a decade, and did you ever imagine that your words, your your poem, your, your website would get such a, like you said, a global, um, global stance? like such an impact yeah. on so many people across the world. I think I wanted it to. Like I said, that's the part yeah. of me that it was like, yes, and now let's bury that. Uh, and I actually, and, and I'm actually really glad that I did that. Uh, there was a, re a retreat, a women of color leadership retreat that I went to, um, I don't know, within maybe the first or second year that I had started The Body Is Not An Apology, the first year. And I remember being at this retreat and my meditation over the course of the retreat was die to ego. And I was very clear that whatever vision it was that I was holding for this could not come forth through me if I was full of me, right? And that actually whatever needed to come through, I needed to move Sonia as far out of the way of that 
for whatever was possible to come through. Um, and so I really feel like only maybe in the last couple of years, probably since I wrote the book, have I even begun to like put myself back in the mix of it. You know, for several years, the body's not an apology existed. And I don't think people necessarily knew that I'd created it. People, to this day, people walk up to me like, oh, that's you? Like, <laughs> there's a disconnect. And for a reason, because I wasn't interested in having the movement be about me. I was interested in having the movement be about people's relationships with themselves and with each other. So yeah, there was a part of me that knew and desired that. And there was a the part of me that needed to check that so that it could actually grow. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've covered, I think, so much ground in, in this conversation. And what we want to like to come back to, you already heard it earlier probably with that, is that we have just like some regular um, segments on the podcast. Um, uh, and so we have a selection. Uh, we have a monthly fave, and that can be a favorite piece of media, mm -hmm. um, book, TV show, film, uh, YouTube channel, Instagram person. Um, yeah, some, something that you want to share with our audience, um, or the feminist of the month, which mm -hmm. can be broadened to any activist, social justice, uh, person someone involved in social justice, um, or feminist, or someone who influenced you uh, in your journey or in your life. Cool. And are these either or or both? You can either yeah, or, 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 or both, because sometimes like, maybe they wrote a book. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to do the, what was the first category? Um, a piece yeah. of media. So I'm I'm really actually very excited about the new season of Handmaid's Tale. Uh, and so I'm just going to acknowledge that because there's a deep part of me that is like just uh, apocalyptically oriented is the way that I'll describe that. <laughs> I'm a Scorpio. I'm, you know, the, the dark and morose appeals to me. Uh, and I think that this is the season where the main character, Offred, um, actually goes back in to like fight the regime. Um, and so I'm excited about, one, I think that it's so terrifyingly parallel to the actual social moment that we find ourselves in. And I'm, I'm fascinated by the ways in which media is telling us a thing about our times, but, and that there are two options that we can do with that. One is that we can just, you know, treat it as fiction, like, and that there's a way in which part of it is to lull us away from the reality of it, and then part of it part of it can be to alarm us to the reality of it. Um, and I'm much more on the alarmist side. I see it and I'm like, oh, if I'm watching, if, if somebody could think it up in a script room, then a politician can think it up in a legislative hall, right? <laughs> and has, so and is right now, right? And yeah. so I want to be two steps. I see what you're about to write next season. So let's, yeah. you know, so let's build a strategy from that. So, so I'm actually kind of excited to see what Handmaid's Tale does this season. Um, so that's my media piece. Um, and then... Um, I mean, it was a tremendous honor and gift to get to keynote, uh, you know, to close the event that Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw opened. And, you know, I've had opportunities to um, spend time uh, with Kimberly in the past. And, um, but this is the first time where my work has been shared alongside her work in a space. And I, I was like, well, all right then. Maybe I'm doing something right here. So yeah, that felt, um, like I said, it felt really powerful to be able to share my ideas that now, you know, due to her work, I was able to have language for the way in which I was talking about the things yeah, I was yeah. talking about. So 
yeah. Do you have a book that you... I love reading, so... Yeah. <laughs> do you have a book that you can really recommend? Um, mine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Body is Not an Apology, oh, The Power of Radical Self-Love. Shameless. <laughs> Shameless. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, and also... Um, uh, a friend of mine and organizer, activist, thinker who I think is just doing really, really amazing work right now. Her name is Adrienne Marie Brown, um, and she just put out a book called Pleasure Activism, and uh, it's fantastic. Uh, in talking about the ways, you know, thinking in relationship to Audre Lorde's uh, The Power of the Erotic, right, and the idea that our that our liberation has to be tied to our pleasure. Otherwise, there's no reason to want to give free, right? And so, <laughs> and so what ways is learning and embodying our own pleasure an act of resistance every single day, and particularly for the most marginalized bodies, the bodies that we say should not enjoy pleasure, should not enjoy um, just yummy deliciousness. So yeah, that's, that's my, second, uh, my second pick. Awesome, thanks. Thank you so much. Yes. Absolutely, thank and you. Thank you so much for coming and agreeing to talk with us for the podcast. Yeah. yeah. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.